Welcome, Poddlers. Many of us who work in the TV and film business focus our time on the creation and distribution of content. But with so many great TV series and movies out there, it's so important for content distributors to find a way to connect with audiences. Viewers listen to the opinions of their friends and connections on social media, but journalists are still crucial in connecting audiences with stars and shows. So I wanted to learn more about the world of journalism, and my guest Stephen Armstrong is the perfect guest to zoom the camera lens on this industry. Stephen writes extensively for a number of publications in different fields, but it's his work for the Sunday Times that in recent years has cemented his place as one of the UK's leading writers on film, TV, media and culture. When you add in his work in front of the camera for the Sky Art series Discovering Film, you have the full entertainment package. Stephen shares his views on celebrity interviews, the changing nature of journalism and the intersection of Simon Le Bon and Afghan fighters. Enjoy. Hi Stephen, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Very good. Well, it's, it's great to have you on board. I was reading one of your articles recently, which was uh, quite an interesting look at the world of friends and interviewing the various friends over on the Warner Brothers lot. And it made me think as a way of uh, people getting to know you, which friend would you be? I would love to be Joey, just for the sheer unadulterated confidence of the how yeah doing. Um, and of course, the extreme uh, gorgeousness. I fear I'm probably Chandler because I'm nerdy, awkward, drop things and try to mask everything with humour. But I probably am just irritating like Ross, constantly shouting, Pivot, Pivot, at everybody until they can't bear me. And therefore, that's why I'm living miles away from everybody. That was a really interesting article, just in terms of the hoops that you had to go through to secure that interview and that process. The piece started with this. It was a following the Friends reunion. And I think the general conversation amongst almost everybody, certainly amongst my friends, but also online was, hey, what has happened to Matthew Perry? It was just perceived that there was something unusual about his performance, his behavior on the show. If I wanted to interview Matthew Perry after that friend's reunion, the chances of me doing so would be zero, just isn't, isn't possible. So the way that has evolved is right, we're gonna profile, we're gonna pull together everything and we'll ask everyone who knows them. In that particular case, I had had a very unusual experience with Matthew Perry at the launch of a show called Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which was remarkable for being a catastrophic failure for everyone involved, all of whom went into it on a high. Um, so you had Aaron Sorkin, who just finished the West Wing, you know, and he had the, some of the rest, West Wing regulars were on there. And you had Matthew Perry, who just finished Friends. There's all sorts of great things about that. NBC primetime bombed, absolutely bombed. It fell apart. It was being rewritten as it went. And it was taken off air at the end of the first season. Nonetheless, I was, for my readers at that point, again, at the Sunday Times, very interested in the show because it had Sunday Times touch points. It had references to Saturday Night Live. It had Aaron Sorkin and it had Matthew Perry. So we really wanted it. Quite often in the case of US films or television shows, when you sign up to do them, you have a clause in your contract which agrees to a certain amount of publicity. And these things are fought over. In the case of Matthew Perry, he had to do interviews and he had to do a certain number of interviews. He had to do international interviews. He really didn't want to do them. 
so I was out on the Warner Brothers lot, which is just the most Hollywood of lots. It's got all of these. It looks like you really want a you know a Hollywood lot to look like. It's got these big square buildings in a grid format. Each of these buildings, that's where they shot Casablanca. That's where they shot Friends. That, you know, all, and they've got plaques on the wall on the outside. You just feel so Hollywood. Um, and I was out with a just a brilliant Warner's employed publicist who I probably won't name just for the sake of it. I'm not, I know that she's still working, still doing very well. I don't think she'll suffer as a result of this story, but just to be safe. And uh, she was just this sarcastic New York publicist who had no illusions whatsoever, but was great. And yeah, sometimes when you're dealing with the wall of PR, you deal with people who are cold and dead inside and will, you know, they don't recognize that, hey, this is just entertainment. But this woman, she she knew, like, okay, this is what we're doing. And she was very shrugged shoulders, whatever. So Matthew Perry, for some reason, wanted to see me before he agreed to the interview. So we went out to the ones lot and we were waiting for a long time. And then his publicist phoned her and said, right, it, what we want you to do is we want you to walk across a gap between these two studio buildings and he will see you. Now, you can't turn and look at him. You've got to just walk across as if you're casually walking across. He'll look at you and then if he likes what he sees, he will then agree to the interview. And we were standing there and she said, Stephen, it's television. Nobody's going to get killed. And so I loved her. But then we did our walk. We walked our walk. And whatever, however we walked, whatever my gait was like, it was acceptable to Matthew Perry. And so we then did the interview. But he was very off focus. He was very distant. We only had about 20, 30 minutes. So it wasn't a question of going really hardcore in depth. And it wasn't that kind of piece. For the Sunday Times culture section, which has a particular kind of approach to shows, quite often it's more interested in what the show says about the culture rather than the intimate life story details of the individual performer. It's not a gossip section. So I wasn't that bothered about a lot of the stuff that we weren't supposed to ask about. But he couldn't even rise to the tell us about, you know, this phenomenal institution that you're parody parodying. And eventually I remember said, something like, just, you know, do you expect this to be as successful as Friends? And he just had this really despairing line about, I suppose I was in a the most successful show on TV. I've also been in the least successful. I can't think of this show in that way. And I'm just exhausted. I'm exhausted. And at that point, you really kind of almost want to stop the interview and say, Matthew, is everything OK? I've only stopped an interview once to check with the star that they were OK and they understood what was going on. Um, and that was Tom Hardy. But... In the case of Matthew, I wanted to and I didn't. We just carried on with the interview and we got the piece and it was okay. It was unusual. It was an unusual experience to see the raw weakness of celebrity. And so then years later, when they said, will you, will you profile Matthew Perry? I said, well, look, this happened. Normally in those slots, you don't have the personal stories. Normally they're very, they're very neutrally toned. But they said, yeah, go on, put that in. That week, that story was the most read story in the Sunday Times. And that is as we will talk about later, the new nature of journalism is that the following day, you can tell how popular your story was and how well it was. Something TV, films, everyone's always had, but a journalist only had for the last 10 years or so. But yeah, that was, story was well read. And is, is that the sort of thing that you thought you were doing when you started out in your journalistic career? So I was born in the late 60s and I hit pop culture awareness 
I guess, very end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s. And at that point, pop culture, politics and global opinions were all intertwined in this very unusual moment in cultural history. So, you know, I grew up with Frankie Goes to Hollywood having political essays on the back of their album covers. Culture, celebrity, politics, belief, all of these things I felt were just naturally part and parcel of the same experience. And the journalism that, that I, I was encountering at the time was things like The Face, the NME. I remember, you know, The Face during the minor strike would cut between interviews with Madonna and reports from, the, from a colliery about secondary picketing. They would have photographs of a police officer charging down a, a woman at a protest about to hit her like a knight on horseback as this horrific image, then followed by, a, you know, a beautiful fashion shoot. And so I entered the world, of, I, what I understood as journalism was that. I picked up the face in particular. And I think for, for my generation of people, The Face was an incredibly important magazine because it inspired people in different ways. I know people who were inspired to go into fashion by it, people who were inspired to write about music by it. For me, what it said was, for a journalist, it is as valuable and useful to ask Simon Le Bon about what it's like to be the masturbatory symbol for prepubescent schoolgirls as it is to discuss the politics of Afghan resistance to the Soviet Union, that these things are not separate. They are part and parcel of your experience of the world. And that in understanding how people consume culture, what you do is you understand a lot more about people. Why do people choose certain things at certain times? You know, why do people, why do certain adverts work? Why do certain TV programs take off? Why do certain films take off? I was raised in a culture where that was a sociological exercise as much as an entertainment exercise. So for me, talking to Matthew Perry about Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, even though he didn't know this, I was interested in the cultural echoes and resonance of what had happened. What did friends mean? Who? And of course, the, the point about culture to a large extent is that the people who create it don't know why something has hit. Uh, very early on in my journalistic career, a good friend of mine um, who now lives in New York, who writes a bit for New York, a very good journalist, he said, journalists, when they're teenagers, they are the people who, when you go to a party, they're sitting around at the edge, watching the cool kids dance in the middle. And they think to themselves, when I grow up, I'm going to be a journalist and then I'll be dancing in the middle. And what they find is when they grow up, they're still sitting around the edge. It's just the people who are dancing in the middle are different. They might be politicians, they might be celebrities, but you're always sitting at the ed edge watching. So you're looking for that sort of angle and that's informed your approach to your journalism throughout your career. But at the same time, I guess the people that are giving you access to the, these people dancing in the middle of the room want you to communicate certain things about yeah. that piece of media whether it's a movie or film or whatever it is um, how do you navigate that uh, that process i mean it's a it is a war it's a, it, well it's a war it's a skirmish in a in a war you have people who want to sell and readers don't want just to hear tom cruise say i have got a new film and it is very good so how do you the journalist in the middle of it navigate that and the way you do it is really about tricks so again, when I was growing up, those sort of face smash hits, enemy, Rolling Stone, 
70s and the 80s, you had this kind of aftermath of something called the new journalism, which was this American school of journalism where the journalists would expect to spend days sometimes interviewing a subject. By the time I got to doing regular uh, high, you know, high-level celebrities, but, you know, celebrity interviews, I guess, you'd be lucky to get an hour. I mean, if you got an hour, you'd feel this is a result. So you would, I remember one interview with Kiefer Sutherland for 24 because of the nature of things. I had six and a half minutes with him. And you have six and a half minutes and 1,800 words to fill. So how on earth are you going to make that happen? Sometimes there will be very, very strict rules about what you can and can't say. Um, I try not to sign those things. Sometimes you have to. And that can be incredibly complicated. There, there are tricks to wrap to get around that. You have to work out how you can bypass the psychological preparation that people have done, but also the other people in the room who are listening out for the questions that you ask. So it's how do you create incredibly rapidly a sense of enormous trust so that within minutes, someone is prepared to tell you something that they wouldn't normally tell a friend unless they were drunk at the end of an evening and yet not let them or their PR realise that that's what they have done and make it feel like they're talking about the product they're trying to sell. And a, a lot of that is about intimate preparation of observing and understanding what it is they're trying to sell. So if you have watched that film and thought about it and you've read their life and you're connecting what they've made with who they are, you can begin to unpick them by talking about their work. Uh, Kevin Spacey was a difficult interview, a very difficult interview. Dustin Hoffman was supposed to be a difficult interview, but sometimes you can open people up by getting their version of something that you know from what you know about them is clearly probably a mistelling or, or a legend about them that they're not comfortable with and asking for their version of events. Just allowing people, up at the top of any of those interviews, you've got to let people tell you what they want to tell you. And so that is basically, you give me your sales pitch, okay? We're here to talk about your movie. You've got 10 minutes. Give me the stuff on the movie. Finish the 10 minutes? Okay, now let's get started. And it, Because otherwise they will be constantly trying to get to that back to that first 10 minutes, obviously, because that's their job. Dustin Hoffman, we did that. And he, was, he is a sticky interviewer at times. I mean, he has been known to be, back in the day, to make journalists do very strange things. But there's a story about him, which is that he was on the set of Marathon Man and he came in for the shoot where he was being tortured and he looked like an absolute wreck. And the director said, what's been going on? And he said, well, you know, I knew I was going to be tortured and I was supposed to be a guy who running all night. So I did the deep method and I, you know, stayed up all night. And um, Laurence Olivier is supposed to have said, why don't you try acting, dear boy? And I don't like that story. That doesn't ring true to me for some reason. So I said, I've heard this story. This doesn't seem true to me. And he said, you're right. So he started on, it was great. I mean, the story was great. He said, I was going through a divorce. It was New York, it's the 70s. I was out at Studio 54 all night. I was absolutely off my head. I came onto the set. I said, what is going on? I thought, I'll blag it with the method ploy. And he did it. And I'll tell you another thing. Laurence Olivier had wrapped and had gone home. He wasn't even on set. He told that story later on to someone. And I'll tell you another thing. I got really friendly with Laurence Olivier and Joan Powerwright. And she told me that when he did uh, Hamlet at the Old Vic, he used to jump off three stage blocks every night so when he walked on his knees was buckling under him so he was more method than you were lovely story but it hit 
25 minutes and we had five more minutes to go and we had not done anything. And I remember him looking at me and saying, you haven't got what you need, have you? No, I don't. I, I really, I, I mean, it's a lovely story, but that's not really what the piece is about. And he did something very unprecedented, which he said, okay, stay around at the end of the junket. I'll give you another interview. And he did. And he would not have done that if he hadn't finally been able to tell his story about the Laurence Olivier story, which had clearly been bugging him for years that everyone ran that story. There's, there's a sort of a low-level, you know, A-level psychology to the job, which is how, how do you make people feel comfortable enough to tell your readers something about them that they have never said before? And it's hard because a lot of those people will have, said a lot of things a lot of times and they would have given a lot of interviews to journalists and they know how to block journalists out they know they don't want to go to certain places so how do you sidestep that how do you flick that i mean the other way around and i'm going to tell you the tom hardy story now is the opposite of that there's a certain there are certain points in actors careers or performers careers but in most recently i've spoken a lot to actors where they're just beginning their press career and they're just hitting stardom it's not at the very beginning they're very nervy very very nervy and they're very protective but they do talk a lot about their families which is always great particularly then interview them again they've talked about their family they trust you third time great it's all fine but there comes a point where they're just breaking through the stars and they are finding that they are an actor who's a star and they're doing press and they kind of love it and they can become really annoying or they can just really let go in the case of tom hardy he was just on a roll. Now, his accent was changing, all sorts of different accents. All the parts he'd played recently, he was going from, you know, Cockney wide boy, a little bit of Jamaican patois into a bit of Australian. It was just unbelievable. We got to this point about how he'd got to where he was in his career and how he'd become an actor. And he was talking about his youth and talked extensively about the buying and selling of marijuana. And we reached a story where he was in a car with a mate of his, and they were arrested for possession of a substantial quantity. And they were taken to a police station. At the police station, the sergeant was checking them in and said, do you have anything else that you want to tell us? And Tom Hardy said, so I reached into my tracksuit and I pulled out a gun and I put it on the counter. And at that point, I said, can I just be absolutely clear that you understand that you are talking to a journalist on the record at this point. I mean, I don't normally do this because if you say, if you start talking to journalists that take machines on, that's like officially they can use all of that. There are lots of, there are rules about on and off the record and that kind of thing. But if you're sitting in front of a journalist, they've got to take the machine on. You can't retrospectively redact that. Do you understand what you're doing? And he was fine with it. Yeah, no, no problem. Told the story. Just for closure, the, as it turned out that his friend was related, his friend's dad was something at the Israeli embassy. And so the car had diplomatic protection. And the embassy said, no, the car wasn't there. No, you must be wrong. So he got off. But still, sometimes ethically, I think you have to say, are you okay? Do you really want to tell that story? Like, there's psychology up to a point. Push it up to a point. But then your humanity cuts in and you go... You're doing yourself harm in this particular scenario, and I can't be party to this damage that you could be potentially doing to yourself, unless you're absolutely clear that you want to take part in this situation. So having been a print guy and um, possibly other sort of new emerging media, you then made a bit of move and have been, I suppose, a performer contributor on the TV side as well in front of the camera. How have you found that? Has that been interesting, challenging, helpful 
what um, what's the experience been like? So I've done print, I've done radio, and I've done television. And I know that my skill base is words. That is what I can do. Television is the opposite of that. And so I have had a series of desperately unsuccessful steps into television. I am currently fortunate to be part of a show on Sky Arts called Discovering Film, where there's a group of film critics and film journalists who talk about different filmmakers, different actors, and that has been a massive education. And that which your listeners cannot see, but you can, is that my natural um, physical style is to move quite a lot. And when I'm making a point, I quite often frown and I lean forward. And that makes for terrifying television, really scary. People kept saying, you're like a skull, um, or you know, you're about to attack the camera. You know, I'm, I was not good with my face. But then I did this thing called The Desk on BBC Four for a while, which was with Tyler Brule, a very, very good journalist. And that was where I learned how to move your eyebrows. And I did not realize that in order to uh, be on television, I would have to spend a morning understanding that you raise your eyebrows, you do not frown that you whenever you've got a point to make instead of going like downwards with your eyebrows like this what you do is you raise your eyebrows like that and say this is very interesting and then people don't mind so much those sorts of little bits and pieces of those details and, and I wrote scripts for um for both uh, exclusive and the desk I would write scripts for packages and you know that thing where you're working in a medium where the words do not matter because how are you going to illustrate that what's the picture really what the words are doing is they're just letting the picture breathe that was a discipline that I found very complicated to understand. And of course, it is the future of journalism. There's a very good producer, um, Lindsay, Savile, Lindsay Savile, on Discovering Film, who is unforgiving in her critiques of how best to appear on screen. And she has taught me a lot. And it is something that I'm beginning to become comfortable with, but it's taken me like 15 years to put yourself visually into something and get control of that. I think I don't think about how I look. I don't think about the pictures. I don't think about when you say something, how are you going to illustrate it? How are you going to show this, not tell it? And that's the difficulty. Does it help with your journalism in the sense that it gives you access to a different audience, a wider profile, and that in itself is part of this sort of intersection now between uh, the, the spoken word and, and video as well? Yes, and I think that's kind of curious in a way. I mean, I think that so the fact that you turn up on television makes some editors see you slightly differently, even though it doesn't make you better at what you do for them. We are in an age where the sunset industry of print journalism is trying its best to understand how to expand out and how to exist in other areas. And the idea that um, if the staff of a title, if a kind of freelance, contracted freelancers, and at times I write for The Wired, I write for a number of other publications. If you have a profile on television, it, it reaches a different audience. And at the bottom of your name, you say, Stephen, I'm a strong critic Sunday Times, and that helps. So I can see the, the value for the publication, but it doesn't make you a better writer. It makes you a higher profile name, which is not really what I went into journalism to do. I went into journalism to vanish and lure people into not knowing I was there. Well, it's at this point of the podcast that I ask my guest for their lockdown movie, book, music, which can take any form, and box set. So what are your lockdown media? 
So musically, I listened to Bill Withers' live concert. I think it's Carnegie Hall a lot. It's a great lockdown album. It's one of the most emotionally rich and loving performances. He's so his songs are so beautiful and loving anyway. And his, you know, his songs are not just about romantic love, they're about friendship and about warmth. And his crowd are with him. And you listen to that, and at the end of that, you you feel connected. That's the thing. Bill Withers will sort you out every time. As Kevin Rowland sang, I think, in Plan B. Bill Withers was good to me. Pretend I'm Bill and lean on me. It's uh, the, uh, You cannot go wrong with Bill Withers live at um, Carnegie Hall. In terms of lockdown box set, I have two teenage daughters, and so they control the uh, screen. So my lockdown box set has been Modern Family quite a lot, which I have found ideal, really, because they think that I'm, what's his name, the Bill, the the dad in that they just basically use that as an excuse to mock me but again it's about you know all of these things are about connection aren't they so um modern family has turned out to be my box set my book has alternated i've got a stack of books beside my bed some of which are very worthy so i've got why do we sleep and one about chernobyl and all these things but i can't stay with them for too long because the real world is complicated so i then flick back to uh, jack reacher I thus have this secret love affair with Jack Reacher. So I keep reading Jack Reacher. That, you know, it's short. You know exactly what's going to happen. There is no surprises in Jack Reacher books. Um, as soon as a woman arrives with a white shirt, you know that he fancies her. You know, as soon as there's a group of thugs outside a bar, you know he'll kill them all in 30 seconds flat. Oh, it's just reassuring. The world is always true. Um, and also a great book called This Is Going to Hurt by, um, I can't remember his name, Adam Kay, maybe? which is a book by a junior doctor. And at the t- well, I was reading this through the lockdown. Very funny, very strong insight into what I love is professionals talking about their workplace with the sarcasm and cynicism. That all- this is why I love journalists gathering on IPJs or junkets with journalists. Everyone sits around just talking. And there's a great Bourne film where at one point Matthew Bourne and the Clive uh, Owen character meet in a cornfield and they've just been shooting at each other and Clive Owen's dying and Clive Hood says to uh, Jason Bourne, do you get the headaches? Do you get the headaches? And he goes, oh, I get the headaches. look what they made us do. I love that, the idea that hitmen complain about the job. Um, but yeah, that is a book about a junior doctor just going, oh, and it was, it's very funny. What was, there was, so that was a book. And, and your lockdown oh, movie. I watched a lot of zombie movies, weirdly. I watched World War Z. I kind of had this thing. I don't know why. That seems really perverse to watch films. That one where they, oh, it's a great, I can't remember the name of it. They're, 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 zombies are in Las Vegas and there's a squad that have to go into Las Vegas and uh, loot it. I don't know why. And I coupled that with um, a lot of uh, George Clooney, Brad Pitt movies. So uh oceans Eleven, las vegas i think basically zombies in las vegas that was the key thing for me yeah that's what got me through well we can only dream we've kind of got one and we can hope that we'll get back to the other stephen armstrong thank you so much for being a, a guest it's been fascinating and uh i and and other listeners i'm sure will look forward to reading some more of those articles over the coming weeks and months thank you very much danny absolute pleasure <laughs>